to LOA Today. I'm Walt Thiessen. I've been doing this podcast since September of 2012, and boy, are my lips tired. This is your daily dose of happy. We are so happy you decided to join us today. Indeed, we are. Uh, Alex is not going to be able to join us today. Apparently, her internet is out, which makes mm. it kind of tough. It's hard to connect when you don't have the internet, but uh, she'll be back. And thought Dan might be able to join us. Dan has not been able to be with us for quite some time because he spent the last six, seven months, something like that, in Dubai. But I know he's home now, so I wouldn't be all that surprised if he shows up one of these weeks. Um, so kind of pay attention to that. But uh, we are not bereft of communication today because I have a special guest joining me. Her name is Shannon Petrovich. Shannon is a licensed clinical social worker. Uh, but she's also an author and her whole thing is about helping people to deal with and overcome toxic relationships, abusive relationships, narcissistic relationships, you know, all the good stuff, right? <laughs> um, and she, she's an expert at that. And of course, these are topics that we have talked about before and we love. So it's going to be fun to get her perspective on this. But Shannon, hello. How are you doing today? Hi, Walt. Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Glad to have you here. Where, where are you connecting from today? Tucson, Arizona. Tucson. Okay. Yeah. So what, what, where are you at right now? Is, is, is the hot weather turning into nicer weather at this point? Oh, it's gorgeous. It's yeah. absolutely perfect every day. And we live right on a nature preserve right near the mountains. So Ooh. it's perfect. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know the winter is, is the ideal time to be in the Southwest. So absolutely good stuff. So, all right. Well, you got to give us a little bit of a background. Tell us how you got to be Shannon Petrovich, the pet, the amazing licensed <laughs> social worker and author of the book, Out of the Fog into the Clear. How'd you get there? Oh, gosh. I don't know about the amazing part, but it's been a journey. And I've been a social worker, clinical therapist for about 35 years. And about five years ago, I felt like... Um, sharing my insights and perspectives and strategies one hour, one person at a time was a little stingy. And <laughs> there were so many millions of people, all, <laughs> so many millions of people all over the world who were struggling and have mm -hmm. no access to therapy. And it seemed like a lot of people were listening to YouTubes and, and it felt like a, a thing to launch into and just try out and see what happened. And amazingly, the, um, it kind of blew up after just kind of slogging along for a little while. Sure. And the thing that people really wanted most to hear about was toxic relationships, particularly narcissistic relationships. So I put out more content about that and more live streams and things like that to help people and just to share. Um, and then the, that kind of grew into so many questions and so many times that people wanted to hear the same kinds of things of how to get well, how to deal with, how to heal from. And then I felt like I needed to pull it all together into a book. So I uh, kind of forced myself to sit down and okay. walk through the process <laughs> of writing a book, which is not easy. Um, but I do love to write. And the, the analogy of fog, um, because I'm a sailor, kind of really oh. sparked my creativity. And I kind of got rolling on it. And then one day I hit save and publish. And bam, there we are. <laughs> <laughs> funny how that happens, isn't it? I mean, anybody who's Very ever weird. pursued the, the idea of, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to put something out there. And then you go through the process. You have no idea until you get into it exactly what's involved. There's a ton that's involved. It's yeah. amazing. But when you get through, when you're done, there's a real sense of accomplishment, even before the audience has found the book. It is. It's really neat because 
all the thoughts and feelings and strategies and perspectives. And, and I really focused it on journal prompts because mm. I wanted to actually help people walk through the process. If they don't have a therapist, or even if they do, they could use it in conjunction with therapy to walk through from the very beginning, all the way through to re really rebuilding yourself and your self care and all of that. So when I got it all done and, and hit save and publish, I was like, wow, that's pretty neat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it is neat. No doubt about it. And, and of course, I, well, I'm not surprised that uh, you had so many people expressing a desire to learn more about toxic relationships, narcissism, abuse, and all that sort of thing. I mean, you look at the, the popular media and many of the top personalities, I won't name them, but the I think we can all pretty much identify them. There's a lot of them who represent those different categories and they, they have become popular because there's already a demand for it within the population. So of course it's a big thing with, within the, uh, the broader population, but how cool that you were able to tap into it. What, what kind of response have you gotten? It's been really exciting and, and a lot of fun. And I've been doing a lot of podcasting lately and that's mm. been completely new and exciting and fun. Mm to be able to share with people from all over the world. I've um, interviewed on with people in South Africa and Nigeria, yeah. and Germany and, and uh, the UK. And it's just really exciting. And I do live streams on my YouTube channel every other week also. And that's amazing because people will respond and jump in from all over the world, even if it's the middle of the night where they are. Right. Jump no, that's in true. And, my mission is just so that people wouldn't feel alone because I think that despair is, is part of what triggered me to get into the YouTubing and eventually write the book was that even people who do have access to therapy fall into such despair that they, that they suicide and mm. a couple, a bunch of sort of high pro profile suicides a number of years ago was, was part of what sparked me into it too. Yeah. Really wanting to help people understand depression and anxiety. Uh, and then, like I said, it kind of segued into toxic relationships and, and really it's all intertwined because when you're sure. in a toxic relationship, your depression and anxiety are off the scales. And I've had so many people come into my office as clients and say, I'm, I'm depressed and anxious. And as we unpack their lives, I'd be depressed and anxious living with their partner too. So it's, mm. it's no surprise. And we have to learn how to take care of ourselves and set boundaries and begin to live fully within our skin and, and living out loud or, or we do get depressed and anxious. I, I was just reading today uh, about uh, the topic of when people first interact and meet. And, you know, developing early relationships, um, you know, usually primary relationships. And in the course of, of reading that, I, the the book I was reading was oriented toward men trying to find women. Um, and and the theme was you want, you know, the, mas the masculine thing is you always want to be putting yourself out there. You don't want to be pulling back and being introspective. And what, what really caught my attention when I read that is, yeah, that's true. And yet that's also in contrast to what you need to do when you're dealing with a toxic personality and abusive personality. Something. You actually have to go, you have to do exactly the opposite of what as a male you're trained to do. I mean, that's, and, and I'm sure there are similar issues that go on on the female side, but of course I look, look at things from a male perspective and I think, damn, that's a tough one. How do you break that? <laughs> that's absolutely right. And our culture, our culture just stinks at so many things in so many ways because we teach men how to be 
uh, out there and not introspective. We teach women how to be pe- people pleasing and placating instead of being our true, full, authentic mm-hmm. selves. Mm-hmm. And so when you start a relationship with one person being all about themselves and the other person being um, all about the other person, you've already set up a, a dynamic that's not healthy. Right. And it can go any which way, but it's not going to go in a good direction until both people are fully authentic. Yeah, that's true. And of course, the other problem, but this is, I think, probably the biggest problem of all, is that we human beings are habitual. We we repeat the same behavior patterns. We be, we repeat the same thought patterns. I mean, I think the researchers say that we have, what, 60, 70,000 thoughts a day, and 95% of them are the same as what we had yesterday. And we- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, talk about habitual, you know. We must be bored with ourselves. I know, right? Thank God for the other 5% or we'd be just absolutely comatose. (laughs) But it's true. And, and of course, well, you've seen this uh, many times, I'm sure, as a therapist. I'm I'm sure you probably addressed it in the book as well. But people will find themselves, you know, uh, on the theme of of meeting people for the first time. They're, They're meeting the same kind of person over and over again. They leave right. one relationship and all of a sudden they're in another relationship and oh my God, it's another abusive person or it's another narcissistic person or something like that. It's the, the same right. thing over and over again. Talk about that. Why do you think that happens? Yeah. So the problem is exactly what you brought up. The 60,000 times a day that we're talking to ourselves in toxic ways typically. And so mm-hmm. when we fall into toxic relationships, it's usually because we have a toxic relationship with ourselves, mm-hmm. not to blame the victim, but we have to look at how we treat ourselves first, because if we're constantly running ourselves down, if we devalue ourselves and degrade ourselves every time we have an issue or have a problem or get frustrated or feel sad, and you may not even be aware of it, but when you recognize all the ways that you run yourself down, then that's going to resonate and be familiar when someone else is negative and running you down instead of, if you're really good to yourself internally, if you are your own best friend, if you support, encourage, and, uh, you know, nurture yourself when you're struggling, then somebody else being negative or self-centered or degrading of you, that wouldn't, that would be absolutely abhorrent. And you would shut that down and you would walk away from that person. So we have to clean up the toxic relationship with ourselves first and foremost. And it may be that it resonates with someone from childhood or mm. something that we interpreted from childhood that then became a toxic relationship we have with ourselves and with others. And and if we look at that and really take the time to heal, and that's why in the last part of my book, I'm all about rebuilding the sense of self, <laughs> rebuilding your connections, rebuilding everything. You You probably come out of that relationship very bankrupt, but if you don't take that time, to rebuild and to repair the internal stuff, whatever that's from, um, you're going to probably be familiar um, with that other toxic person. And it always looks totally different. And then it always is the same and it's just tragic. Um, and, and and the toxic people, I, I don't mean to, to degrade people, um, but the people who, who exhibit the toxic behaviors, let's describe it that way. They know what they're looking for. I mean, they, oh, they sure. don't necessarily do it consciously, but they know exactly what they're looking for. And they see that if they keep seeing the same things over and over again in you, guess where they're going to go? Right. Yeah. Right. And that's the tragically perfect match. 
Uh, yeah, I right. Did, I did a video called that, the, the narcissist and the empathic person, the tragically perfect match. Mm. Because for the empath, that is horrible. Um, it's familiar, but mm. it's not comfortable. Some people will say, well, it's just comfortable. No, no, no. It's miserable and horrible. It is. But it is familiar. Yeah. And so that could resonate for them. And then they end up in the same relationship and then shocked. And then they feel stupid. Um, and then they degrade themselves further. So it's kind of a, a terrible, um, self-fulfilling prophecy. Then you feel worse and worse and worse. And then you accept more and more of that. So it's a, it's an awful pattern, but it's a very common one, unfortunately, until you get out of the, uh, get off of that roller coaster. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm totally with you on the use of words too, because what most people call the, the comfort zone, I call the familiar zone. So when I hear you saying that, I say, yes, that's the way I think of it too. <laughs> yeah. It bothers me when people say it's comfortable because There's nothing that comfortable is really it. starting to blame the victim where you're yeah. saying, no, that's comfortable. And no, it's not. It's That's horrible. a great point. I don't think the people who use that phrase realize that, but that mm -hmm. is a form of victim blaming, isn't it? Oh, it's awful. It's yeah. awful. That's really something. That's that's good. Now, okay, let's say you're in that toxic relationship. The hardest part for many people is recognizing that they're in one. Why is that? So we talk about the fog, the fear, obligation, and guilt. And that fog is just like ocean fog. You literally cannot see what's going on around you. You don't know whether to move or, or stay put. And uh, it's dangerous either way. So... Mm. Getting out of the fog uh, is, is similar to getting out of the ocean fog. You have to find clarity and you have to find rational um, anchor points. So if you're on a sailboat, you need a radar and then you have to look at those stupid squiggly green lines that don't look like anything <laughs> and you have to trust them and move through that channel and mm. out into the open ocean. But when you're um, in a toxic relationship, that fear, obligation, and guilt gets you completely disoriented. The person is telling you it's your fault. They're blaming you. They're telling you, well, if you wouldn't do that or if you would only do this, then I wouldn't get so mad and then I wouldn't blow up at you and then I wouldn't A, B, C, D. So to get out of that is really hard because you're busy blaming yourself. They probably separated you from your people which gives you a, a um, good point. A, yeah. a, a huge uh, gap in your reality testing and your ability to figure things out. So the reality, the, sort of those radar lines and clarity come in different forms. For a lot of people, it's a a crisis. So when a big crisis happens and you know something really big happens, and they can sit there and go, "Oh my gosh, this was really terrible." This happened, then this happened, then this happened. So I encourage people to write those things down because you can stay anchored in that truth and those realities if they're written down. Otherwise, they start to blur into the fog again. Mm -hmm. And so very quickly, you're telling yourself, oh, well, it, it wasn't that bad or it wasn't too terrible or I can handle this. Um, and then and then you're back in the fog. So you've got to journal it, write it down. You've got to share it with somebody that you trust so that they can keep feeding it back to you. And then the other thing is to recognize that our emotional mind may never be on board with leaving. Mm. And our rational mind has to be the one driving the bus. Because if we let that emotional mind, that 
trauma bonded part of us always make the decisions, you know, and again, our culture stinks at this. They say, follow your heart. Well, it's a terrible idea. I did a, a video recently saying why follow your heart is the worst advice ever if you are in a toxic relationship, because our heart may still love that person. We may still hope, we may still believe mm. that something can change, but our head knows differently. And when our head knows differently and our head says it's time to go, you got to follow your head, not your heart. It's an interesting point. And, and I want to kind of expand on it a little bit by exploring an alternative viewpoint on it. Uh, because I think just from having interviewed people here on the program, many people who propose the idea, listen to your heart, what they're really saying is listen to your heart about what's important to you in your life. And which is a little bit different from loving the person despite the way that they're treating you. But it's such a subtle difference. I think that's probably where the problem comes in because right. especially for somebody who's in that traumatic relationship, they have trouble differentiating between the two of them. That That's actually one of the things that the toxic person was looking for. I mean, you mentioned how they try to separate people. Well, actually one of the first things they look for is does this person have anybody in their life? If they don't, they're, they're a great target because they have nowhere else to go. Right. Yeah. Right. And so that separation, then the gaslighting, which is mm. that, um, that making you feel crazy. Oh no, that's not what happened. That's not what happened at all. Mm. Um, using other people to kind of gaslight you. Oh, everybody believes me and you know what I put up with in you, <laughs> you know, they'll even kind of flip the script and make it sound like you are really a handful and you're really terrible, but they're willing to kind of stick in there with you. Um, in addition, it's the cycling of love bombing and devaluing that really kind of sinks the hook in really deeply because when someone is love bombing you and, and it's different than love, love is like, I really want to get to know you. I really want to hear how you think, feel what you want, what your dreams and aspirations are. That's love. Whereas love bombing is coming in hot <laughs> and, and being all about themselves, but all about control and manipulation. Yeah. And so, you know, one, one person I was talking to said this, this guy showed up with a ring to their first date and she was like, Oh, really? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Are you kidding? <laughs> I've never heard of that. Oh my God. Like, that's coming in hot. That's yeah. the definition. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> So I think that, you know, when, and I think the follow your heart part might be that sometimes we get a gut feeling about somebody and we ignore it because mm. we want to that, we want to believe their, their yes. words yes. and we got to look at their actions. Yeah. And so that's something that's really crucially important too. But that, that cycling of love bombing. And then as soon as you get comfortable, they devalue you, run you down, kind of mm. tell you your garbage. And then just as you're kind of getting a little bit of distance and going, I don't want to put up with this anymore. Then they come back in with the love bombing. And so it's that cycling back and forth that gets you trauma bonded and hooked. And the trauma bond is really bad because then you're kind of doing their job for them. They're, you're running yourself down. You're devaluing yourself. You're blaming yourself. And so a lot of times people will come um, out of those relationships. They don't know what they think or feel. They don't know what they want. And we have to start from scratch. You know, it's, it's a very, 
you're so emptied out of yourself because you've been so focused on that person. Mm, that's a good phrase, emptied out of yourself because you're so focused on that person. It It's actually a, a great way of saying you're not focused enough on yourself. And again, that ties into our culture, which teaches us very strongly. Oh, no, no, don't focus on yourself. That's being selfish. Um, you got to you have to give most of your concern to other people, all that kind of stuff. It creates conflict in the mind. It, it, it creates a, a conflicting dialogue in the mind. And that dialogue can be awful hard to resolve if you don't have a good tool for resolving it. Right. And when I teach boundaries, and this is one of the really important pieces, circling back to your question, is it, when you feel like you're in a toxic relationship, perhaps the thing that you really have to focus on is boundaries. Mm -hmm. So that demands that you figure out who you are and what you want and what you think and what you feel. And in doing that and expressing that to the other person, you get to see if that person is interested in growing and if that relationship is salvageable. Because sometimes people show up in a relationship, people pleasing and placating, then they find themselves miserable and then they bail out instead of learning to set boundaries, learning to express themselves and then seeing if the relationship has any potential. Um, and so it's really important to learn how to do that and then see what happens. If somebody escalates and gets really angry that you're setting boundaries, you know that you're in a really toxic relationship. Mm. But sometimes a mildly toxic relationship or somebody, like I said, that where you've set this dynamic in motion and they're not even necessarily wanting that either, then you can learn to express yourself, set boundaries, talk about what you think or feel. And the other person is happy to, you know, have you be a full part of that relationship and you can right. both be fully authentic in that relationship. And then you've got a real love. That's true love. I, I was just thinking that Alex couldn't join us today, but uh, we describe her as the queen of personal boundaries. And <laughs> if she'd heard that seg section, she would have said, absolutely, you got to set those boundaries. I mean, she would have just been all over that. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's totally what she's all about. Um, let, let's also talk about though how you grow those boundaries because it's not something that's easy to do. And I'm going to let you talk for a second because this has happened so often lately. My cat wants to come in while I'm doing the podcast. <laughs> so I have to go let him in. So I'm going to let you just, just focus in a little bit on, on this idea of how you develop the ability to create the boundaries. And I'll be back in about 10 seconds and I'll, okay. I'll join you again. Okay. I've got my two dogs with me. Otherwise they'd go. be knocking too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, boundaries are, are how I take care of myself within a relationship. And so it can be as simple as I am, I'm not going to stay in this uh, conversation, if you're escalating, if you're angry, if you're um, talking down to me or talking badly towards me or cussing or loud, I'm not going to continue in this conversation on the phone. I'm going to leave the house or leave the room and we can try again later. So in the beginning, you want to set boundaries that are, they're basically like a, a little grown up timeout <laughs> and, and not to you know, not to be demeaning of anybody, it really is a grown-up timeout because the behavior is kind of a tantrum. Mm. And in the same way that you wouldn't want to let your five-year-old have a tantrum and then hand him an ice cream, you don't want to keep feeding those tantrums. You want to call them out. You want to 
um, notice them out loud and say what you will and will not put up with. And that's how you set boundaries. And then you have to check yourself and say, am I feeling guilty? I don't need to feel guilty. This is um, healthy. This is what I need to do in this relationship. That person has the option of changing their behavior. If they choose not to, then I have the responsibility to take care of myself and leave the relationship. Um, if they choose to grow from that, that's great. And I've seen lots of people grow and really save their marriages and partnerships and friendships and sibling relationships and mother to son, mother, daughter, um, you know, parents, children. It's, it's possible. And it's only possible if we are fully authentically ourselves with good boundaries. And if, as long as we're people pleasing, placating and peacekeeping, the three P's, as long <laughs> as we're P's. doing that, we're undermining ourselves and we are not existing fully in that relationship. So that part is our responsibility. And then what happens from there determines whether we're going to stay in that relationship or not. So this goes right back to what we were talking about before, the idea of how are you going to treat yourself? What, right. what kind of dialogue are you going to have internally? Because if you've got that negative dialogue going on where you're tearing yourself down, you're going to have an awful hard time setting those boundaries. Right. You got to feel good about yourself before you can feel good about putting a boundary down with somebody else. Right. Yeah. Right. You have to be standing up to your own toxic self. Right. And, and, and supporting and encouraging your own self. And then you are able to do that in the world. And, um, and it will make perfect sense. This also brings to mind, I, I, I have a, a favorite, um, pair of concepts that I like to talk about at times here on the, on the podcast. Uh, they, one of them comes out of a survey that was done by Sean Aker, one of the spokesmen of the positive psychology movement. And uh, he did a study when he was at Harvard, uh, where he was trying to help the Harvard students um, to gain more confidence that they can achieve their goals because they're so stressed out and so forth. And so he did the study and discovered in his study uh, the only thing he found a correlation on was that uh, he found a correlation on social connectedness and that those students who developed social connections were 70% likely to achieve their goals. That factor all by itself was going to be 70% predictive of their success. And if they didn't develop the social connections, then they weren't going to be successful 70% of the time, um, which is a really high correlation. For me, the combination that makes the full 100% is the social connectedness and the self-confidence. And that when you put those two things together, you guarantee success with whatever it is you're trying to do. So I'm kind of curious to know to what degree does social connectedness play into what you're talking about? Yes. And the, the other thing that I think our culture really stinks at is self-esteem. And the yeah. whole self-esteem movement of the 80s was ridiculous. And <laughs> Talk about why that was. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> because, uh, you know, parents just esteemed kids. Uh, oh, I don't know. It's like toxic positivity. Mm. And, and when you shower kids with toxic positivity and esteem for no clear, clear clarity, you, what you create is kids who are anxious and depressed and confused mm. and don't have any real sense of being able to um, accomplish anything. And so it's a really weird dynamic. You would think the opposite. And that's why, you know, the self-esteem movement happened, but, but it's really a, it, it's really backwards. And so what mm. we need to do 
is really be a lot more clear and we need to esteem effort and character qualities and things like that instead of achievement. Because when we only esteem the, um, the, either, either we under, you know, we only esteem just showing up or we only esteem the first place winner, then we, we discourage kids. So it's really important that kids understand and people understand that self-esteem comes from who we are in our character qualities and our values. And in our culture, our self-esteem comes from superficial things and, um, and completely non, non-important things. And when we can, you know, your bank account or what you do for a living or whatever, things like that, people don't feel good about themselves when that happens. And when they don't feel good about themselves, then they are, they can fall into despair. You know, we've seen a lot of high profile suicides, people who seem to have it all, who did, who fell into despair and killed themselves. Mm. So what's that about? It's, it's because you don't understand who you are as a real genuine person in your character qualities and your values. So one of the pieces that I work with, with people in my, in my uh, practice and also in my book is to help people completely regroup on who they are. And, and a lot of times social connectedness helps us with that because a lot of times people don't know who they are. They don't understand their character qualities until they ask other people who really care about them genuinely, what is it that you like about me? What is it that, that you value about me? And when you can hear that you're a really caring person, you're, you're loyal, you're dedicated, you work hard, you, those are character qualities. Um, those are things that are, are really our values and in action. And that's what makes us actually feel good about ourselves. So, if we can do that work, then we feel good and then we will stand up for ourselves and then we will feel successful no matter what we do. You said something that cued an idea in my mind. And it, it, it the idea is in regard to a pet peeve that I have about <laughs> a, a phrase that probably did originate in the 80s. It's still being used by parents today. And I'm going to be curious to know what your take is, because I, I really have a pet peeve about this. So many parents, as they're especially working with their younger children, will use the phrase, good job, good job, as a way of rewarding them for you know achieving something that the parents want them to do. What's your take on good job? So it's mixed. I think, again, you have to be aware that when when they they did some studies actually and when you said good job or um or something like that as opposed to good effort the kids became discouraged if they didn't win or they didn't get the first place or they didn't get mm-hmm. an a and so what they found was when you praise the effort and praise the the hard work or the um dedication or you know, for me, I look for sportsmanship and I praise that, you know, mm. when we're watching our grandson play soccer, I want to praise his sportsmanship. And when mm-hmm. he, you know, if some kid gets knocked over and he helps him up, I think that's awesome. And I'm going to praise that. If you're only praising the goals, then that kid gets discouraged if he has a rough game and makes no goals. Mm. And so I think that's where that stuff really falls flat. 
Yeah. I, I, the other part for me that is uh, that I don't like about uh, the phrase good job is that it's often used as a way of describing that the child accommodated something that the parent wanted them to do. Yeah. And I understand why parents are doing that. I understand what they're, what they're attempting to do, but I also know how that interferes with what I call the internal compass that everybody has, that children have, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a great deal of faith in, in children. I, I, I really totally believe the, the greatest degree that we can allow them to just follow their own internal compass is also equal to the greatest degree of growth that they're going to experience. They're going to accomplish more. They're going to feel more self-confident. They're going to learn more about their environment better. They're going to learn how to interact with others better. The whole thing's going to be better. Their, their education's going to be better. They're going to learn to read better. They're mm-hmm. going to learn to write better. They'll learn to do math better. All of it is going to happen the more that they're allowed to follow their own compass instead of, you know, somebody guiding them, some adult saying, Oh no, you got to do it my way because this is the proven way to accomplish that particular thing. Yeah. That, so, so to me, that's, that's another piece of it. This, the, because what the parent or the teacher or the adult or whoever they are, what they're really saying when they say good job is thank you for doing it my way. <laughs> yeah, I know what you're saying. And I think that one of the things that I've noticed with our grandson, especially is that he loves to play a game the way it's supposed to be played. And then he just goes off on his own tangent <laughs> <laughs> and we're using these as that. And he's got new rules that he's made up and it's a blast. <laughs> and I always, I always follow his lead and just let him do that because that creativity is so wonderful. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think what you're saying is, is right on, but I think too, parents have to balance those things with how do we help kids grow up to be responsible adults who are aware of others in their environment. So I think there's a balance point there where you can't mm-hmm. let a kid completely run amok because some kids will be brilliant and some kids will run amok and be really <laughs> destructive. And also I think some kids are wired more uh, self-centeredly and some kids are wired more other centeredly. And we, we have to notice those things in kids because there are kids who are so other centered that you have to reel them in and help them mm-hmm. to focus on themselves. And there are kids who are so self-centered, you have to teach them empathy and compassion in very, uh, very clear and, and concise ways, or they will just run amok over people their whole lives. Do you think that those kids, uh, at either of those two extremes, or actually both of those two extremes, uh, is it environment or, or is it genetic? In other words, it, I, from my perspective, I suspect they're picking that up from their environment. They're learning it as they're going along, but I'm curious to know what your take is. Yeah. So that, that was kind of always my thought that it was the nurture part of nature or nurture. Mm -hmm. But in fact, there are newer studies out that say that, that people are born a little bit more narcissistic or a little bit more empathic and then their environment shapes those things. So, you know, I think that any parent will tell you that this kid was kind of wired this way and that kid was wired that way. And I think that's true. I think that kids some do have that nature, that genetic nature. And then it's our jobs as parents to, you know, guide those kids to some degree, let them be their brilliant selves, but also sort of sand some of those rough edges off so that they don't be 
you know, either become so empathic that they're everybody's doormat or become so self-centered that they're the, the town bully. Yeah, we certainly don't need any more town bullies. We've got plenty of those around. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I actually want to probe on that a little bit more, though. Um, sure. I, I really am kind of curious because you said that there are studies that were done that showed that it is uh, more wired in from birth. And I guess the question that enters my mind when I hear that is how what what are they testing for that tells them that it was there before they, they took their first breath? That's a good question. I don't know. I just I think that the you know, I'm, I'm believing what I read, but I don't know the details of it. So I can't go into it too much. But I do know for from 35 years as a therapist that, you know, parents do say this kid was just came out of the womb like this. And I've always struggled with his self-centeredness and his, um, you know, or her, you know, very self-centeredness or superficial focus or whatever, or this kid was so empathic that I, you know, he would chase a puppy down the street and I couldn't get him to come back. And, and I do think that it's a parent's job because I have seen the other thing that's happened over the last bunch of years is very indulgent parenting. And I think when you take. You define that for a moment. Yeah. So it's, it's parenting that doesn't have a lot of structure or, um, or boundaries, really boundaries. So when you are an indulgent parent, you let the kid treat you the way they want to treat you and have what they want and give them everything that they want and don't have them make any effort to do that. You're kind of the snowplow parent where you're snowplowing everything out of their way. And um, so that overindulgent parenting is, is sometimes the, um, the thing that creates a narcissistic and otherwise toxic person. Now, I don't think that that happens when you are overindulgent with a really empathic kid. You know, that really sweet, compassionate, empathic kid and an indulgent parent, it, it's okay. But you take that kind of self-centered kid, that kind of uh, wild kid, and you indulge in everything they want to do and every way they want to do it, then you're probably going to have some difficulties. The, the idea of the indulgent parent, as you defined it, that to me um, falls into a it's a, it's a subset of a broader category. That broader category is the parent. Let's see. How do I want to express this? It's the parent who would rather interfere in some way for the good or for the bad, either uh, aggressively or passively, because you can, it's possible to passively interfere as opposed to honoring where the kid is at that time. And so for instance, in the case of the one that we're calling the, uh, the pre-wired self-centered one, overly self-centered one, the way you described it was the, the, the parent who is overindulgent. So basically they're, they're meeting the kid's every desire. And when you, when you do that, you're basically you're, you're interfering with what the kid's growth is going to be like, because you're basically saying, I'm not going to let you fail. I'm not going to let you stumble and fall. I'm not going to let you experience going through any kind of challenge or pain or suffering or anything like that. Cause I don't want my little baby to experience anything like that. And when we do that, what we basically say, I'm not going to let you live. Right. 
And we're also saying, I don't trust that you can handle anything and yeah. I can handle it all for yeah. you. And right. so it's essentially, even though it comes from a place of love and I fully believe that it essentially handicaps a child emotionally right. for the rest of his life, his or her life. And so it's extremely destructive and, and people don't realize that until the oftentimes things are in a crisis point. Mm -hmm. um, and that's when a parent needs to learn boundaries. And sometimes, you know, one of the most um, watched videos that I have right now is when your child, when your son or daughter is a narcissist. And I have so many parents of adult children who are very toxic and narcissistic towards them. Um, and that's pretty tragic. But, you know, oftentimes the clients that I have who are going through that, they realize how indulgent they were, how they snowplowed everything out of the kid's way. They never let them be frustrated or sad or upset or, or have difficulties and they never set boundaries. And so this young man or woman has no sense of reality truly, and uh, certainly no sense of respect or compassion or empathy for others. They're all about themselves. So, so I, I get the feeling at this point we're making the uh, uh, the nurture argument rather than the nature argument. <laughs> <laughs> and that, you know, like I said, you take a an empathic kid and you overindulge them. No big deal. No, you take but, a, a self-centered kid and overindulge them, you got real problems. So where does the problem come in for the empathic kid? What, where, how, do, how does the parent interfere with that? I think it's really important again that they learn that they learn boundaries because they are so empathic and compassionate towards others they don't understand what they need and what they want and and they don't set good boundaries oftentimes so they can tend to be the one that is mopping up everybody's messes and and helping everybody and not getting their needs met so it's I think it's just important as a parent to understand each kid and how they're wired and what they need so that they can be a balanced, whole, authentic adult. And, and there, I, I would still say it's the nurture side of it because in my experience, the parent who is experiencing a, an empathic child and, and the empathic child is starting to flip over into that territory where they're not meeting their own needs. That's the parent that's basically sucking all of the, the benefit out of the empathic child because they're, oh, well, the empathic child will do this for me. The empathic child will take yeah. care of that. Well, what should I have to worry about? Hey, this is great. I love this. Mm -hmm. You know? So I, again, I, I look at that as a nurture issue because it's, it, it's really the parent feeding the child information that doesn't serve the child, but serves the parent instead. Well, but when you have three kids or four kids in a family with the same parents or parent, and you have kids come out completely differently. You have to look at the nature and the genetic part. No, I, right? I'm not sure that's true. And, let, and I'll give you an example <laughs> to show you why I think that's, that's, that's not necessarily true. Um, if we go into a work environment and let's say we have four coworkers that we work with regularly and each one of them, we find we have to create a different relationship with them. Well, what we do, we, we create a different relationship with every single one of them. We don't treat them all the same. Right. As a matter of fact, I think it's probably the worst advice. If you want to talk about worst advice, the worst <laughs> advice you can get to a parent is to treat all their kids the same. Right. Right. Because, because they're wired differently. They are all different. Every single one of them is different. Every one of them is reacting differently. I think probably the more important question is, what are you looking for from your kid rather than what are you looking for 
for your kids' benefit. Mm-hmm. Because I think that's that's why we end up with parents who have a variety of different. Uh, um, I don't want to call it dysfunctional. It's that that's the wrong. That's too far in that direction. Um, kids with challenges that that we're trying to help uh, help them through. Um, and, and this kid has this particular challenge, and that ha- kid has that particular challenge. I don't think that's a, the example of nature. I think it's an example of a parent interacting with parent with kids in different ways because they can get their needs met this way here, they get their need met that way there, and it's like this nice little balance. All we have to do is just do this little dance continuously, and my needs get met. I love this. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, the nature versus nurture argument is always a fun one that goes on forever. Let's talk a little bit more about the uh, the the dealing with the narcissistic personality um, that has become something of a a thing for lack of a better term particularly over the last i'm going to say 15 years something like that uh and i say it that way because i just look at what happens and what's happened in popular culture and who have who have emerged as uh popular uh figures in popular culture and and the ones that i think we can all kind of identify as having a narcissistic tendency they they all kind of popped up in the last 15 years or so I, I suspect that is what happens so often. The popular culture reflects what's going on underneath. So um, narcissism has been around for generations. It's been around for centuries. But in the last, call it 15 years or so, it's become a, a big thing. Why do you think it's become such a thing? Can you point, pinpoint something? Yeah, several reasons. You know, bad behavior has been around forever, like you said. And we didn't use the term narcissism in my early career, we just weren't focused on that. It was certainly in the DSM, mm. um, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, but we really didn't use that term very much. And um, I think what has happened is a number of things, but one is that our culture has become more narcissistic. Uh, the social media has promotes narcissism, promotes superficiality and and focus on yourself and focus on the, the things that, uh, you know, getting what you want when you want it, how you want it. Even our television shows, um, you know, are all about revenge and, and getting one over on somebody. And it, it's just so anti um, what we would think of as healthy character qualities. So those are, are things that I think young people are dealing with. But I do think that the term narcissism started as a helpful term where people were able to go, oh, now I get it. This person really is dishonest all the time. Mm. They they will lie, cheat, steal, do whatever they need to do in order to have control and manipulation over me. And when you're not a narcissistic person, that's so baffling. Mm. Uh, you you really can't even understand that somebody would lie all the time about stupid stuff. Right. Um, and so I think it was helpful initially. And then it has sort of morphed into being weaponized. So people will even flip the script. And when they are very narcissistic, they will call the other person narcissistic. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, to try to. <laughs> that, that's the number one defense. <laughs> blame and shame and undermine that person right. who's starting to get strong and want out. So I think that's a really important thing to notice that that can be used as a weapon, but it can also still be very helpful to help under pe- people who are lost in the fog to understand that there really is a set of characteristics that is so different than how you think and feel that 
you you have to look at it as a, a a separate thing so that you can line up the facts, realize it's not about you, recognize that you're not going to fix it or change it. And it's really important to protect yourself and get out. I love that example that you gave about how they, they flip the script around because <laughs> that's my favorite way of identifying a narcissist. By far. <laughs> I, I see somebody who's constantly accusing others of what they do. I say, well, okay, now I got one right there. <laughs> yeah, I did a video called projection, how narcissists right. tell on themselves and it, and they literally do that. You know, they'll say, Oh, you're so judgmental. And it's like, well, wait a minute. You're the most judgmental person ever. You're so superficial. Wait, what? <laughs> that's you. And you don't tell the truth. No, I'm always truthful. You're not. <laughs> so it's that flipping of the script that you're right. That's a, a, that projection is a classic way that you can see when someone's toxic. It, it, it's also something that I've used to evaluate um, various cultural points. Um, for instance, back in the 1970s, there was a song that came out that I think was it, it, the popular story was that it was about Warren Beatty, but um, the song was called You're So Vain. <laughs> yes. And I realized later on that the author of the song qualified. <laughs> 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 like, okay. It, it, it reminds me of, of the old adage about when you point your finger at somebody, there's three more fingers pointing back right. at you. You know, it's right. one of those kinds of things. So, so now it's gotten to the point, whenever I hear somebody complaining about somebody, I say to myself, Okay, so is there a little narcissism going on here? <laughs> yeah. It's one of those really challenging things. It's it's also well, to me it's also um a positive reminder. Because if I can remind myself every single time that I have a tendency, because I mean we're human, we all do stuff, right? We all say things that we perhaps would regret or maybe we don't regret. Um <laughs> but but we, we we say these things, we do these things and we can start to recognize in ourselves, well, why am I getting negative about somebody? Why am I, why, why am I pointing a finger? Why am I doing all this stuff? And that actually I find to be a starting point for growth because if I can identify that I'm, first of all, that I'm doing it, usually I can, if I, if I dig far enough, not always, this is where a therapist comes in, but usually I can identify where I got it from. What what made me want to do that? What made me want to point the finger? What made me want to to disparage? What made me want to tear somebody else down? Because invariably it was because of something else that I was feeling, that I was experiencing, and and I, so I I see that as as a growth point. I'm curious though, because as a therapist, you run into people, you experience um, work with clients who are are so stuck on this kind of stuff that that kind of analysis is often hard to just get through. You you have to kind of like go deep. You have to go into you know childhood roots and things like that in order in order to help them out. So what's your take on 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 the role of of having an opportunity to see your own behavior and learn from it? Absolutely. The you know one of the things that I teach all the time and talk about a lot is emotionally stepping back and being able to notice things from a little bit of an emotional distance. Because when we are completely involved and engrossed and engaged in someone else's behavior, we can't see the forest for the trees. Mm -hmm. But when we step back, and I call it watching the circus go by. Because oh, okay. I think, <laughs> That's a good phrase. I, think I like that. <laughs> if you step back and watch that person, and whether it's you know narcissistic behavior or anything, you, if you step back and watch, you'll notice 
different things. So maybe stepping back and watching, wow, that person is truly empathic and truly compassionate in everything that they're doing. Mm -hmm. This new person I met is just really fascinating that they're just an open book. They're not afraid of sharing their thoughts and feelings with me. When I share my thoughts and feelings, they seem to really take it in. So stepping back emotionally, being able to notice things is really important. When you notice that somebody's behavior is just really raunchy and you step back, you're not engaging in it. And so you can even stay present because some people have to stay in that narcissistic relationship. They have to, whether they're co-parenting or whatever reason, they have to be able to be physically present, but emotionally distant. And so it's an extremely important skill to learn. And I've had clients who have said, yeah, I was around my, my mom and she was acting all, you know, but I was just watching the circus. I'm like, oh, wow, there she did that. Oh my gosh. Then she did that. She always does this next. Oh, there she does. <laughs> there she goes. Mm -hmm. And so that helps protect you emotionally and help you remember and re remind yourself that you are not, that's not your stuff. Yeah. That's that person's behavior. That's their choices. And you are not, you don't have to be involved in it and engaged in it. So you can, you can sort of stay there and smile and nod and <laughs> kind of be physically yeah. present, but emotionally distant and protecting yourself. Now, if it then starts flying in your direction and is, you know, directly assaulting you, then you have to respond. But oftentimes it, it's just like watching the circus and you can just watch it go by and not, not jump in the monkey's cages with them. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, uh, I, I think that uh, what, what we're really talking about there is perspective. What what perspective mm -hmm. are you going to take to absorb a situation while you're in, engaged in it? I mean, you're, you can be engaged in it at the same time, but you can still maintain that perspective. And in that perspective, you can actually come to appreciate where they're coming from. You don't have to like it. You don't have to want to engage in it, but you can kind of appreciate it. You can say, well, yeah, all right. I can kind of see how she created that. You know, maybe dating back to when she was a kid, maybe her parents did X, Y, and Z, and that led her to, to, to generate this kind of a pattern. And, and the more that we, the more that I find that I'm able to appreciate that kind of thing. Well, first of all, the easier it is to not be affected. I, I, I mean, I get to the point where, I don't really feel like I need to feel emotionally distant. I, I can actually feel emotionally engaged. I just don't care about what they're trying to, to project on me. It just doesn't matter to me anymore. Cause like you said, I've totally bought into, well, that's their stuff. Right. I, I, I can't do anything about the fact that it's their stuff. It's up to them whether they're going to do anything. And if they're not going to do anything, oh, okay. That's what they chose. There's, there's, there's got to be some beauty, some payoff in there for them. Otherwise they wouldn't keep doing it. What's the point? Right. And, and like you said, I think a lot of times we can come to peace. Even with somebody, you know, a lot of people are having to take care of their elderly parents who are really toxic. Yeah, yeah. And so how do you do that? You know, you come to some sort of piece of they're doing the best they can with what mm -hmm. they were given. Mm -hmm. And I think finding peace within yourself is how we live in our peace and we live in our authentic selves. Um, and when we can do that, then everything is okay even when it's not necessarily okay. I remember my mom passed about three years ago and just before she passed, my, my sister was caregiving. Um, I was living in a different place and I, but I went to visit just before like about, I'm no, actually I, it was about 11 months before she passed. It wasn't just before, but even then I could see the behaviors going on that my sister were, was dealing with. And 
one of the things that I noticed was I, I learned something about my mom that I had never known before. I had been going on her entire life, but I'd never recognized it. I was finally able to identify it in that last conversation I had with her. What I realized is my mom didn't really know what she wanted in life. She was 89 years old and she had still never figured out what she wanted in life. Wow. And I thought to myself, wow, it it is sad. And and then I, I thought about it from her perspective. What, what was that experience like from her perspective? And from her perspective, that was normal. Right. From her perspective, that's the way life was. And I thought, Wow. So that's the way she's been living her entire life. It gave me an entirely different appreciation of where she was at. Now, did I want to adopt it? Of course not. I didn't want to adopt that at all. (laughs) But I I actually could love her more for that. Like, wow, that's what she's been going through all this time. I never knew that. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing when we find out more. And and it, again, if there's a whole spectrum of toxicity and some people are in the mild and some in the moderate and some in the mm. severe. In the severe, you just have to, you know, save yourself and get out. But mm. but so many times, you know, people do have toxic parts of themselves. And I really feel sad when, uh, you know, pretty decent parents are being cut off from their kids because some therapist told them that they were the narcissist and you ought to get rid of them. And, and, you know, people who are estranged from their kids because they went to therapy and somebody kind of overreacted to something, Mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't, I don't know. That's one of my current pet peeves is people completely cutting people off when they're really in the more mild to moderate, if anything, but instead of learning to set boundaries, talk things through, even if it's uncomfortable, um, you know, people just kind of cut people off and they're done. And if it's your child or your parent or whatever, I think that's really sad. Mm, Yeah. I'm I'm recalling something that uh, my wife once told me. My wife's a former psychotherapist and uh, yeah. And uh, it's interesting when you're married to a psychotherapist, you learn a lot about therapy. <laughs> yes, my husband would concur. <laughs> but you also learn something about therapists. And the point that she made is very few therapists actually want their clients to grow. They'd rather mm. just that they, they just keep coming back. It's, it's I'm a the rare, opposite. It's a, it's, it's, well, I'm, I'm the opposite. <laughs> yeah, but, but it's a rare therapist who says grow or go. Yeah, <laughs> that would be me. <laughs> yeah, but but talk about why you think that's important because I I personally think it's important. I know you do, but oh, gosh, talk about why yeah. that's important. You know, and, and therapists are people too, and mm-hmm. they have their dependencies and their codependencies, and oftentimes they need to be needed, and that is a very terrible thing to be as a therapist mm-hmm. because then you need people to stay sick in order to meet your needs, and that's awful. Yeah. And I know, you know, current clients who've had therapists like that in the past, and I let them know right up front, that's not me. I have boundaries and I, and I'm going to push you and, and I'm going to give you lots of thoughts and ideas and perspectives and strategies every single session. And I'm going to, you know, keep checking in and pushing you every single session. So, you know, and sometimes people say, well, that's not me. And they 
find somebody else. <laughs> yeah. and I like that phrase, grow or go. Yeah, it's a good <laughs> one, isn't it? Yeah. I, I, I think there may have been a few that left because <laughs> they, didn't they didn't want to grow. grow and it was too what, uncomfortable. Dude, to I came here to do work? Week. No, 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 no. I, I'm not here to work. You're here to fix me. What's going on here? What, what am I paying you the good money for? <laughs> yeah, it's a challenge. Hey, this has been really a great uh, conversation, though. I really like that you came on and, and shared your stuff with us. Before you go, got to get some information from you because you have your book out um mm -hmm. well and you also uh, the, i imagine you have a nice easy way to find it but tell us about the book and tell us how they can find it okay so it's out of the fog into the clear journaling to help you heal from toxic relationships and like i said it's strategies perspectives and lots and lots of journal prompts and you can use those to talk to somebody about those or you can actually journal it out whatever you choose some people mm -hmm. hate journaling so they go oh gosh i don't want that but <laughs> it's a it's a a guide to really help somebody work through the things and sometimes people have been out of the relationship for years and they still feel the same way and if that's you, it would be helpful to you as well, because sometimes that um, we left physically and not emotionally. Um, so I talk about all those things that we've talked about today and and give you a little bit deeper look at that. My landing page is nofoggydays.com or right. therapisttalks.com. And so you'll find my book link and my Therapist Talks YouTube channel. I do live streams every other week, so jump in and ask questions and and join me on one of those. Nice. Um, yeah, so I just want to be there for people and help people feel that they're not alone. That's a good thing. Yeah, it's a really good thing. So I'll make sure we include a, a link in the show notes to make it easier for them to find that. And uh, one other thing I want to tell you that I make it a practice to tell my guests, because my guests, they're, they're givers, and, and you're a giver. It's very clear that you are a giver. There, there are many people who you've never met, who you've never seen, who have heard what you had to say on a podcast or they've heard on your own uh, uh, weekly thing that you do or maybe something that you wrote, and it benefited them in some way. They, they took something away and, and made a change in their lives, and the lives got better and so forth. And I don't think we get enough credit or give enough credit for that. So on behalf of those people whom you've never met and you've never seen, thank you for what you do and what you continue to do. Oh, that's really sweet, Walt. I really appreciate you saying that. And I really appreciate you having me on your show. Glad to have you. So once again, uh, please check out uh, Shannon Petrovich's book. And uh, thank you to our podcast listeners everywhere. We'll see you all next time here on LOA Today. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>